Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. Welcome back to the show. We're going to start uh, a new series on uh, the churches in Revelation, those letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. Um, I want to start the show today by uh, reading a quote by Richard Phillips, um, specifically in regard to Revelations 2 and 3. This is what he says. Christ's messages to the churches of Revelation are so relevant to us today for the same reason that they were so urgent 19 centuries ago. Christ's people need to hear Christ's voice. The tendency is for our churches about the church to veer Sorry, the tendency is for our ideas about the church to veer in a selfish or worldly direction unless we are constantly under the correction of our sovereign Lord. This being the case, it is remarkable that the messages of Revelation 2 through 3 exert so little influence among Christians today. Few believers have given serious study to these chapters and few churches would highlight these as guiding passages for their life and ministry. Yet the Christ who speaks in these chapters continues to stand in the midst of his lampstands, continues to reign as the sovereign of his churches, and continues to hold the stars of the churches in his hand. Because the exalted Christ continues to proclaim his priorities to the church through these seven messages, Christians should study Revelations 2 through 3 with special care and respond with reverent obedience. That's a wonderful quote. I actually woke up thinking, I, I didn't see your notes this morning, Russ, but I woke up thinking this morning, um, one of the, the dominant themes of Revelation 2 and 3 is that Christ is telling his church what they ought to be and what they ought not to be. He is, is grabbing the reins of the church and exercising absolute sovereignty over it. Yeah, and it also indicates to us these seven letters to the seven churches indicates to us that Christ knows his church. Christ is intimately acquainted with his church. He, he's not a, uh, an absentee landlord. Uh, he loves his church and uh, cares for his church and is actively um, shepherding his church. And uh, we should also point out uh, before we begin, uh, uh, obviously the book of Revelation is filled with uh, symbolism some of which is difficult to understand. But uh, these seven churches in chapter Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, these seven churches are actual historical churches. Uh, they were all in uh, what we would call Asia Minor or modern Turkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, even the, the order of the writing fits the geographic location of the churches, which yes. in, uh, a kind of like a circular letter that would have traveled from, um, you know, Eph- Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia to Laodicea. That would have been the route 
in which the messenger would have delivered yes. the letter to the churches. Yes. So maybe just a quick overview on the basic form that each one of these letters take. Um, in the Reformation Study Bible, um, it says that each of these messages have essentially like seven elements to it. So there's an addressee uh, to the angel of the church of blank, write this. Secondly, it has uh, the identification of Christ, alluding back to his majesty displayed in chapter one. It says the words of him, that is Christ, addressed to the church. Number three, it has a claim of knowledge. Christ is saying, I know these things about you. Number four, it has an evaluation of what he knows with rebukes or commendations. Uh, number five, it has a promise of th- or, or a threat. Um, I promise to do these things for you. Um, I'm threatening these things if you don't reform. Um, number six, it has a promise uh, to the one who conquers. Um, it gives that, that promise of, of eternal life and reward. And then number seven, it has an exhortation to listen. He who has an ear. I think um, th- this very much falls with Richard, what Richard Phillips is saying today. He who has an ear, he's not just speaking about the original churches, he who has an ear. He's talking about churches today. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and obvi- ob- these, these letters are written to specific historical uh, churches, but the, the admonition and the affirmations uh, and it's not it's not just affirmation it's not just admonition or correction uh, Jesus gives affirmation to to some of these churches and uh, but even though these churches are historically late first century churches uh, the the message to the church is is just as the message given to these churches just as relevant today as it was then. And Christ is still speaking to his church through these letters. There's a sense in which, you know, just even the number that's addressed here, there's seven churches in, you know, God's word, that number seven is a, is a number of perfection, of completeness, you might say. Yeah. So he's, he's addressing seven churches that represent what you would find even today in churches you know throughout yeah. the land you know there's so the choice of uh sending a letter to only seven uh you know or addressing seven specifically uh, is a way of suggestion that this is for all the churches mm-hmm. yep perhaps we should read that first letter pastor us you want to read that to the angel of the church at ephesus right the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolonians, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." So he, uh, of course, gives them some affirmations, as as you were pointing out, Phil, that much of these letters um, 
include an affirmation. But let's focus on this admonition first. He 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 says, "I have this against you that you've abandoned your your first love." And so, uh, applying this to churches today. Uh, what are some things that can cause us as a church to lose our first love to Christ? Well, uh, first of all, I I just want to um, let's just emphasize I, I, bef- that's a great question, but uh, the the first calling of the church is to receive the love of Christ and to share the love of Christ in the fellowship of the church and. To share the love of Christ with uh, with other, others in the world, um, you know, I'm going back to First John, and uh, this is the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. First uh, John four nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So uh, Christ, the love gift of God to the people of God, is to be our first love. There's something else in, in just even when we break down the these letters to the various churches that each one is bringing out something of the character of Christ as well. And what we see when he opens up with this first church, we see the authority of Christ over his church because he, he, he says, you know, this is, these are the words of him who hold the stars in his right hand. You know, this is, you know, he has all authority on heaven and earth. And, and so we, we get a sense of the character of Christ right off the bat here. And each one of the churches is going to bring out uh, another aspect of the character of Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, John 15, John writes, speaking of uh, what Jesus was saying in the upper room, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Mm -hmm. And then he says this, abide in my love. So if you connect what Phil was saying from 1 John to what Jesus says in John 15, now to back to Revelation 2, mm-hmm. what you have is this starts with the love of, of God the Father through the Son to his people, mm-hmm. and then this command that Jesus says, abide in my love. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. when you get to the church of Ephesus, what you can conclude is that they were struggling to abide in God's love. Mm-hmm. They had received this love, they knew it, they had experienced it. Um, but the the accusation or the the warning is um, for them to to repent because they they've you've abandoned the love you had at first. And Josh was asking before, well, what can cause us to lose that first love of Christ? Because when you first fall in love with Jesus Christ, when you first experience the love of God through Jesus Christ, you don't think you'll ever lose that. Euphoric feeling that you have, yeah. that you you're loved by the God that is because of the wondrous work of Jesus Christ, and you're just madly in love with with Him. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it becomes mundane or ordinary or um, secondary or something that's just part of your life, but not the core of your life. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a phrase here. Before, uh, before he says, you've abandoned your love the first. 
he says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And Christ commends them for that. Mm -hmm. They've rejected false doctrine. Mm -hmm. But there's an indication here, you can reject false doctrine. You can have pure, faithful doctrine and wander away from your first love. Yeah, that's scary. It is scary. I think maybe, um, okay, so just experientially how this happens in my own heart. I study every week uh, for messages. Um, When I'm studying God's word for other people, as opposed to it being food for my own soul. So I could be holding up doctrine, doing it for the glory of God, doing it for the good of my neighbor, and not be feasting on Jesus Christ himself Mm -hmm. for me, for me. And I think this is easy to do, where we have good theology, but have forgotten the God and the Christ of that theology, Mm -hmm. Um, that we can turn it into something intellectual, um, and not um, to use the the other theological term experiential yeah mm-hmm. that it's supposed to minister like Josh was saying to our own soul that mm-hmm. we're abiding not just in his word we're abiding in Christ and it's so easy to make that um, set that aside and just approach God's word as 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 a textbook. Well, there's a sense where also here where he's commending them for their work, their deeds. They know their deeds. They, in in some ways, you know, we can get so preoccupied with the things that we are doing that we we are not focused upon him. That's the really what's yeah. happening. Yeah, like the whole Martha and Mary yeah. incident in Luke chapter yeah. ten. You've been distracted with many things. Mary chose the good portion, and it would right. not be taken away from her. Well, you've been listening to the Gospel for Life. We will see you next time.